Good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. And yeah, it's not Tuesday. It's it's Friday, actually, when we're recording this. My guy Joe was down a little bit, feeling under the weather, so had to push it back. But here we are giving you the recap of the Bills in the championship game, a few other things that went on this week, Major League Baseball. And one of the coaches that everyone loves to love, I'm, I'm going to show you his true colors before the end of this program. So let's start with the AFC championship game because, you know, here it is on Friday and I, I guess the, the venom is, is gone, you know, and then Monday, Tuesday, we we're still very upset with the way the bills presented themselves in the championship game. And what I wanted to talk about was the game itself, but let's, let's look at the season. This was a great season for the Buffalo Bills. This season was only surpassed by four others in Bills history. Now, think about that. There's only been four better seasons in Bills history. The four straight Super Bowls, only those four were better than this one. This is a young team that achieved great things this year. And last Sunday, on the road in Kansas City, the best team in the NFL kicked the crap out of an up-and-coming team. That's the bottom line. We're going to break down the game, and I'm going to talk about some things. But the reality is, going into that game, my expectation was that the Chiefs would win that game. My hope was that the Bills would win that game. But the reality is, the better team won that game. And won it handily, frankly. It wasn't that close. 38-24, 14-point game, it wasn't that close. There was never a point in that game after Kansas City scored their first touchdown that I felt that the Bills were going to win the game. And there were a lot of reasons for that. You know, the start of the game was pretty good. Bills drive down. They end up on their opening drive getting a 51-yard field goal from Tyler Bass. Bass was good, but he also had one of the key plays of the game that was a negative, in my opinion. We'll get to that. So they get a field goal, and right then, I was a little bit uneasy because in, in championship games, it's about touchdowns, not field goals. Multiply that by the fact you're playing against the Kansas City Chiefs. Remember, the Chiefs were down, I think it was 24 to nothing last year and won by three touchdowns. This is a team that scores touchdowns in bunches. They're like a college basketball team that fast breaks you to death. They get on a run, game over. That's the Chiefs. They are the best offensive team in the NFL, and I don't know who's second. I think it might be the Bills, but the reality is what the Chiefs do, nobody else can do. So when you play them, field goals are meaningless. You, know, you get two field goals at six points. The Chiefs just got 14. You're down by eight points. That's how you have to approach this game. And you have to play aggressively. You have to coach aggressively. You have to call the game aggressively. The Bills did none of those things. The missed extra point after McCall Hardman gift-wrapped the Bills a touchdown. He fumbles the ball. Bills recover uh, inside the five. They go in for a touchdown. It's 9 nothing. The miss extra point was huge by Tyler Bass. This is a young man who's been really good this year. Look, I hate kickers, and I hate kickers that wear one eye black. 
and I need kickers that flex after they kick a 38-yard field goal. Because you're a kicker, dude. You, you're a soccer player in shoulder pads. Do your job. Get off the field. If you make a tackle, flex. You kick a field goal, you've done your job. That's how I feel about kickers, and especially ones that wear eye black on one side. Sorry, not down. Missing an extra point in that situation was huge because it takes a little air out of the balloon. At that point, the Bills are riding high. They score the first time down. They stop Kansas City. They force a punt. They punt back. Hardman fumbles. Uh Uh-oh. We go from being stopped. Now we got the ball at the three. We go in, score. Yeah, up 10 nothing, 9 nothing. No. That took something away. And it gave something back to Kansas City. A little bit of, all right, here we go. And that's all it took. And from there, the game changed. There were plays along the way that showed the team that's ready for primetime and the team that's not ready for primetime. And again, I don't want this to be a bashing of the Bills. Because, frankly, as I said, the best team won. But at the same time, the team that we all wanted to win in Western New York came up short. And here are the reasons why. Josh Allen, in my opinion, needed to be great in this game. He wasn't great. He was okay. Josh struggled because people around him struggled. Josh is... a The strides he took this year are enormous, and he gives the Bills incredible hope for the future. But struggling bad against tight man coverage shows he's not quite there. Where a a great like Mahomes or Rodgers or Brady, you tight man, still got a chance to make a play. Drew Brees, you're going to put the ball where only your guy can make the play. Josh doesn't have that level of confidence and accuracy yet. It's coming, and he made strides, but that was a big part of the game. His numbers, 28 of 48, 287. He had two touchdowns, a pick, 88 yards rushing. Those are good numbers. A lot of them were were achieved late in the second half as far as passing numbers. And I'm not here to bag on Josh. I'm not. He's the future of this franchise, and He did things at the end of this game that I absolutely love, and I'll get to that. But when you look at the totality, him taking the four sacks for 53 yards, that can't happen. You can't have a 20-yard sack. That huge of a negative play in a championship game takes way too much to overcome. It's almost impossible to overcome. And he needed to be great. He needed to be at least as good as Mahomes, which is an impossible statement because Mahomes is trending towards one of the best who ever played the position. And I know it's way too early to say that, but if this kid gets his second Super Bowl in his first four years in the league, um, yeah, that's breaking news. That's pretty freaking good. And here's what we're comparing. That's the standard now. And and the Bills have raised their standards. This is the good news. People say, well, it's going to be tough for the Bills. Chiefs aren't going anywhere. The fact that the Bills are being compared to the Chiefs, and it's not a comparison right now. It's apples to oranges. But the fact that those are the two comparisons 
that's who Buffalo has to look at to get better. They're not looking up at anybody other than the Chiefs, in my opinion. Everyone else in the AFC, and the AFC is loaded and only going to get more loaded depending on what happens this offseason with the quarterbacks. But the Bills are at the top of the heap with Kansas City. Now, Kansas City's got their own floor. They're in the penthouse. You know, if there's a presidential suite in the AFC, it's occupied by Kansas City. But the Bills are still in the concierge floor, you know, the one where you need the special key in the elevator to get to that floor. They're on that floor, and they're the only ones, I think, that are there. Everyone else is a notch below. So while Sunday was disappointing on many levels, let's not lose sight of where they are. Josh started out shaky, and I, I get that, you know, first championship game. And you know, look at last year. He used last year's failures in that Houston Texans loss in the playoffs to, to provide the steam for this year. I believe he'll do the same and come back even better. He'll continue to work with Jordan Palmer in the offseason, continue to get better. To me, the strides he's made is pre-snap, and it's here. So we'll, we'll talk more about the future. But Josh also showed his immaturity at the end of the game. He was frustrated. Okafor sacks him, flips the ball at his head. Now, look, I liked it personally. You go down fighting. But that's 15 yards on top of a 20-yard sack. You just lost, cost your team 35 yards. You got to be better than that. But I liked the response. I liked the fact that they weren't done fighting. And I liked the fact that both Feliciano and Dawkins came to his defense. It showed their tight-knit group. They weren't about to back down. And, you know, there's been a lot of, well, Josh's baby. It was a chippy game. You know, D. Jones threw a punch at Feliciano and knocked him down. No, nothing happened. Nobody saw it. We've seen the video of it several times. But this game wasn't about officiating. This game wasn't about that. This game was a better team beating a better team. Devin Singletary was the only Bills hope in the running game. And this year has not been a good year for Devin. And I think a lot of it had to do with what was in front of him is in the offensive line. And seven carries wasn't going to be enough for him to get on track. Six carries for 17 yards. You've got to give your running back a chance if you're going to try to run the ball. And Brian Dable gave up on the run way too early, in my opinion, again. I get it. And I thought Dable had a very average game as well. I didn't think he adjusted to what he was seeing on the field. And I thought that's where the Chiefs coaching staff really outdid the Bills coaching staff. Cole Beasley and Stephon Diggs were both non-factors. They caught passes late, but Diggs only had one catch up until halftime, I believe. He may have not even had a catch. It may have had a target. He ended up with 77 yards. It was man coverage. The Bills had crushed that all year. But in this game, and Romo used the word sticky, that coverage was great by the Chiefs' defensive backs. The offensive line struggled. They, they didn't do the job in run protection. They didn't do the job in pass protection. Josh was under fire all night. He kept some plays alive with his feet. It, it just wasn't a good outing for that group up front. Daryl Williams in particular struggled. 
Ike Bodiger, the, the right side of the offensive line wasn't good. Feliciano, I didn't think, had a very good game either. A couple whiffs up front, and you cannot whiff in the middle of the offensive line. I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about the going forward part of the Bills. I'll save that for the next Falcon round. But that's an area, the interior offensive line, where the Bills need to get better. And a big part of that is Cody Ford. Where does he fit in? This is a former second-round pick who didn't show progress in his second year. In my opinion, Cody Ford needs to have a great camp, either at tackle or guard. And I think the Bills need to bring in, whether via the draft or a free agent, an upgrade over Ike Bogler. I, I definitely think that right guard is the most important upgrade on the offensive line. Brian Winters wasn't good. Cody Ford before him wasn't good. And Bodiger wasn't good either. So there's room there. The defense. I thought Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier laid an egg, frankly. I thought they're – you look at what happened in the regular season. Well, we're not going to let you beat us with your speed. The Chiefs ran the ball for 270 yards. Bills got their ass kicked. Ineffective. They come up with a hybrid where they're still not going to let the speed beat them, but you're playing zone in hopes of preventing the big play. Yet the speed of Kansas City turned small plays into big plays, namely Tyreek Hill. Hill, nine catches, 172 yards. Kelsey, 13 catches, 118 yards, two touchdowns. Crazy thing is, Hills was on 11 targets. He dropped about a 30-yard pass early that would have added to that total. It would have been over 200. Kelsey was on 15 targets. You're talking about two guys catching 22 balls for 290 yards and on 26 targets. And going into the game, what do you say? All right, we got to stop 87. We got to stop Tyreek Hill. Wait, those are the guys you targeted to stop, and they got almost 300 yards on you? Nice game plan. The pass rush was non-existent. They did get a sack on Mahomes, but very few hits on Mahomes. They weren't able to generate any pressure. They were afraid to blitz, in my opinion, because they were afraid to give up the big play. They still gave up the big play. I think when you play Kansas City, you got to take chances. You know they're going to score. Take chances and hope to create a turnover here or there because it's about getting more possessions than they had. You're going to need more possessions because their possessions are going to have a greater average point total per possession than yours are. So the only way you beat them is by getting more possessions. I thought it was a very poor game plan and, and even worse adjustments by Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier on the defensive side of the ball. The secondary, which has been good all year, struggled in this one. And, and, and it's no crime to struggle against Kansas City. It's just what it is. I thought the linebackers and Tremaine Edmonds in particular, this is the guy who needs to take a big step next year. I, I thought he took a small step this year. But right now, if I had to pay his fifth-year salary, if I had to guarantee that and it's going to be over $15 million and I don't know what it is, I, I don't think I'd pay him that money. I'd much rather have Matt Milano for that money than Tremaine Edmonds. Milano's an unrestricted free agent. I think he helps the Bills more than Edmonds does. I just haven't seen it. 
you know, Brandon Bean, and I, I like Brandon Bean a lot, and I think he's done a great job. Ed Oliver and Tremaine Edmonds at this point have not shown that they are worthy of where they were drafted. They're solid players. When you're drafting at 17 and 9 in the first round, they got to be better than a solid player. They got to be a good player. Mahomes had 325 yards and three touchdowns, and he did it easily. The linebackers overall need an upgrade. Speed is the name of the game. And I think McDermott, you'll hear in a second from Sean McDermott, I think he knows he needs more speed defensively. I think he knows he needs more speed opposite Tredavious White at cornerback. I think he knows he needs more speed at the linebacker position. And I think he knows he needs a pass rusher who can get to the edge. As far as McDermott, he, in my opinion, once again showed his game day game management is below average. You're in a championship game against a superior team. You coach balls to the wall. You take chances, and if you lose by 30, so what? doesn't matter. You lose by 1 or 30, it does not matter. Your season is old, over. So you take every chance you can to ensure that you have a victory. Fourth and two, at the end of the first half, you kick a field goal. Really? When Kansas City has the ball coming out at the start of the second half. So you just traded three for seven. Now, as it turns out, they held KC to three. So they got a draw. That was a big win, a draw. He was worried about the team morale. I'm sorry. The team morale is going to be boosted by you running that 245-pound quarterback on a RPO and give him the option of finding someone in the end zone or taking it in himself. Dable didn't do that inside the five, and I don't know why. He's done it all year. Your biggest game of the year, you don't do that. I, I didn't understand that, but that was a terrible situation. He had fourth and three from, I think it was the eight-yard line, and kicked a field goal. Again, those two field goals equal six points. If you got one of those two conversions and score a touchdown, you get seven or maybe six because Tyler Bass might have missed another extra point. But you get my point. You only need to be 50%. And if you go for it there – you're showing, actually, by kicking the field goal, McDermott's saying, well, I got confidence in my defense, and we'll get a stop and get the ball back. By going for it there, worst-case scenario, you leave the ball inside the 10-yard line, and frankly, you've shown more confidence in your defense that way than by kicking the field goal. He coached chicken shit. That's all I could think of. You're coaching like you're scared. And that's not good. And you can't do it. And you won't win a championship game coaching that way. You've got to be aggressive in those situations. I get it. He's a defensive coach. It's not his nature to do that. But this was there for the taking if you coach the game right. There was another situation that really bothered me that Sean McDermott did. And I've I've complained all year. Well, I've complained now for four years about his use of timeouts. The Chiefs got the ball in the first half at the foot line. It was almost a touchdown. McDermott waits till the last second before the play is called to try to call a timeout. Now, Kansas City ultimately called the timeout there and saved the Bills their timeout. 
Why are you calling timeout and first goal from the half-yard line? Why are you wasting the time out there? What defensive scheme, what lack of organization did you have? What's your reasoning and what's gonna what's the best possible outcome there? You hold them to going forward on third down? It was just one of those plays that exemplified to me the lack of respect that Sean McDermott has for timeouts. Granted, this is in the first half. This is a situation where you understand that timeouts aren't as important as the second half. But still, you think about the way that drive went at the end of the first half. would have been nice to have another timeout where you could sit and talk and make a decision about going for it or about kicking that field goal. Maybe somebody could get in his ear. It's just Sean McDermott's improved in so many ways. Game management, he has not improved enough to be a championship coach he needs to take that step forward here's McDermott on reflection of the season and looking ahead so we were getting ready to close the locker room doors to to I was getting ready to address the team and I got word that um Josh uh, Josh Norman and, and Steph were still out there so I wanted to go out there and and bring them in and you know, when I got to both of them, Steph was the first one I got to, and, and he was emotionally, he was visibly upset. And um, so, listen, I can understand why he wanted to stay out there and watch that. Um, I've been around this game and those games enough, including the Super Bowl, where um, I can tell you I don't want to watch it anymore um, because I, I know how hard it is to watch it. But but you learn from it, and that's part of what he needed to do to to, to get closure and also learn from it and and uh, when I got to him, he was obviously, like I said, visibly upset. And I just wanted to um, be there for him as a teammate. Uh, nothing really more than that. Love him and care for him. And whether it was Steph Diggs or the last man on our roster, I would have done the same thing. I like the fact that Stephan, Stephon Diggs stood out there and watched. Means he's going to have fire in his belly when he comes back next year again wanting to get over that hurdle that he couldn't get over. That was, it was really well done, but all in all, and I know I was critical, great season for the bills on Tuesday. I'll start to look ahead with their off season plan. In my opinion, should entail. So we'll talk more about that on Tuesday. The other side of the bracket, if you will, the bucks beat the Packers 31, 26. And remember what I just said about Sean McDermott. Yeah. Well, LaFleur did the same thing for green Bay. He took the ball out of Aaron Rodgers' hands, put it on the kicker and his defense. No, you don't do that. And, and I get it. Aaron Rodgers had a chance to score a touchdown with his legs, didn't do it. You win championship games by your best players making big plays. You don't take the ball out of their hands. Look, Tom Brady threw three picks in this game. I, what Brady's doing, the fact that Brady's going for his 10th, is, is going to his 10th Super Bowl is mind boggling. And, and again, I'm going to talk about the Super Bowl more. But Green Bay had this game. They had a chance to tie this game. And they didn't get it done in large part because the coach didn't give him a chance. Again, a young coach with now a ton of experience. I would assume next year, if the same situation presents itself to Matt LaFleur, he's going to give the ball to Rodgers and let him make that play. 
Devin White was absolutely spectacular in this game. This kid's a game changer. And, you know, go back to the Bills' speed at linebacker. There aren't many Devin Whites. I get it. But you want to talk about the exact type player that this defense needs? That guy. That guy and a pass rusher. And all of a sudden, that defense turns the same way the Bills' offense turned this year. The Bucks' D was really good. They sacked Aaron Rodgers five times. You look at that D-line, and there's some veteran names that you remember. Vitavea coming back, I think, helped Sue get free a few times in the middle. Pressure up the middle. Every quarterback hates that. But JPP on the end was a factor. You know, that guy's rebuilt his career down in Tampa. That's a good D-line. They're, they're solid, and they're going to give trouble, I think, to the Chiefs' offensive line, especially with Eric Fisher being out. Devontae Adams was ineffective, and I think Green Bay had lived all year with Aaron Jones running the ball. He had two fumbles and only six carries, and Devontae Adams catching the ball. And on 15 targets, he had only nine catches. So you start to do things differently in championship games than you've done all year because you overreact. And I think this is a game that Green Bay got away from itself a little bit. And I think that Tampa did enough in the first half, and especially that last touchdown at the end of the half, to change the game and, and get out of there with the win. I don't think Brady was the better quarterback on this day. I think that a couple plays changed this game. The play at the end of the first half and the decision by Matt LaFleur to kick the field goal. They changed the game. You give Brady a chance to close it out by keeping the ball. Yeah, I don't care if he's 43, 23, 33. He's going to get it done. That's why he's playing in his 10th Super Bowl a week from Sunday. So good game there. I want to hit on Deshaun Watson because this looks like it really may happen. I mean, a lot of times we hear – I want to get traded. Well, you don't end up getting traded. Next thing you know, you're having a great year there. Deshaun Watson, it feels like it's over in Houston. And I I don't know the reasons. I know the organization was a mess, and Bill O'Brien did about as bad of a job managing the organization. Somehow he had all the power in the organization for just over a 500 coach. I don't know how he got all that GM power. Traded away DeAndre Hopkins. Traded away everybody. Now they have no draft picks. But they have Deshaun Watson, who's a great quarterback, and he's unhappy. So what do you do? I mean, you look at the teams that might end up with him, and you know there are three teams in the AFC East that could end up with him. The Jets have Sam Darnold. Sam, I don't believe, is the answer in New York. He may be the answer somewhere else eventually. They also have the second, 23rd, and 34th pick. They have two dra- two number ones in the 22 draft as well. Plenty enough to go get Deshaun. It's going to take three number ones at a starting point. You could trade first in 22, the two, and Sam Darnold. And I think the 34, the Jets would keep the 23rd pick and have Deshaun Watson. I think both teams would probably sign up for that. Tua Tagovailoa didn't, to me, look like the guy. But then again, it's so early, and how do you know? Give him chance. Give him time. 
Dolphins have the three, the 18, the 36, and the 50. They could easily make that trade. Throw Tua back to Houston, bring Deshaun Watson in. If that happens, that's, that's a scary team down in South Beach. The Detroit Lions have Matthew Stafford. Stafford's going to get traded or released as well. And it's funny because I think Stafford's one of the more underrated quarterbacks who played in this era. Because his teams were never very good, the organization never built anything around him, he's below 500 as a career passer. But at the same time, you look at the way he plays, his availability and toughness of which he plays, the ability to make every throw. He's got an absolute cannon. I think that going to the right place, and if Matthew Stafford goes to Indy, man, that's a good football team. They were good with Phillip Rivers. I think Matthew Stafford is much better than Phillip Rivers. So we'll see where Stafford ends up. They also, the Lions have the 7 and the 41. And like I said, New England, they need a quarterback. Either Watson or Stafford goes to New England. I think their fortunes change pretty quickly as well. And one other thing for the Houston Texans. While you figure out a way to work yourself back into the draft and rebuild this franchise, J.J. Watt is an all-time great. He's a Hall of Fame player. I think he's got about three years left. If you move him this offseason, you get a number one for him. I'm firmly convinced of that. Maybe more than a number one. The team that needs him, and, and he would be an immediate impact player and a fit, it's the Buffalo Bills. There are a lot of similarities between this Bills team and the Cowboys teams of the early 90s. Even to the point where when Calvin Martin had the punt return against the Eagles in the playoffs to advance the Cowboys along the year before they got to the Super Bowl, it, it almost reminded me of the play that Taron Johnson had with the 102-yard interception return. Very similar plays. Both teams got the championship game and lost. Both teams were a player or two away. The Cowboys of that era brought in Charles Haley, if you remember. And Charles Haley changed that defense and allowed the Cowboys to win three of the next four Super Bowls. J.J. Watt could be this Buffalo Bills team's Charles Haley, in my opinion. Just, again, throw it out there. Keep it in mind. This offseason is going to be interesting. So that's the NFL portion. Major League Baseball was active this week. Well, it should be because camps are going to open in, what, two weeks, right? No, they're not. I'm sorry to say they're not. Unfortunately, Major League Baseball doesn't know if there's going to be a designated hitter in the National League yet this year. The union and MLB, well, they've tried to negotiate this. They haven't figured it out. They, they can't come to a conclusion. They don't even know yet if there's going to be expanded playoffs. <laughs> why, why rush to things? The other thing, the seven-inning doubleheaders, that's on the table. That awful extra-inning tiebreaker rule is still on the table. Rob Manfred is an idiot. Tony Clark is not much better than an idiot, and these two guys can't get together and figure this stuff out. And the reason they're not figuring it out because their backs aren't to the wall. If you think about it, 
the fact that there's no DH, and I'll, I'll use the Mets for an example of why this is so important to figure this out. The Mets is currently constituted if there is no DH in the National League. Pete Alonso plays first base, subpar defensively. Dominic Smith, need that bat in the lineup, he'll play left field, subpar defensively in left field. Brandon Nimmo will move to center. Again, subpar defensively. But you got to get those bats in the lineup. Now, if there is a DH, it makes it a little bit better because you move Nimmo to left field where he becomes an above-average left fielder. Dominic Smith goes to first base where he's a very good first baseman, and Pete Alonso is the DH. And you then can sign a center fielder who plays very good defense, Jackie Bradley Jr., for example, to solidify your defensive team. But how do you make that move if you don't know? If you bring Jackie Bradley Jr. now and there is no DH, you just have a logjam. You've created, you've worsened your problem. So Major League Baseball can't figure this out. And the reason they're not in any hurry to is because, yes, camps are supposed to open right around Valentine's Day, February 14th. But it won't happen because they don't intend on playing 162 teams, 162 games. They have no intention of doing that. They want a shortened season because, once again, fans can't go to the ballpark, so the owners are going to lose money. So the more games that the players play, remember, if you know full salaries for 162 prorated based on the amount of games you play, the more games players play, the more money ownership loses. So ownership is in no hurry to get this done. And ownership runs with Rob Manfred. Now, the irreparable long-term damage they're doing to the game is immeasurable. Nobody cares about baseball anymore except for people who are my age. And that's a huge problem. It's all, The New York Yankees this week, in a salary dump, got rid of a very good relief pitcher, Adam Adovino. Adovino was great his first year. The Yankees struggled in the playoffs last year in the 60-game season. Wasn't all that good. But again, how can you judge in a 60-game season what would have been? You know, first third of the season, he wasn't very good. And then he figures it out and has real good second and third thirds. And all of a sudden, he has a very good season again. They traded him in a salary dump to the Boston Red Sox. Think about that. The Yankees are more concerned with their payroll being below the salary cap threshold because they don't want to lose any more money than they are about helping their hated rivals. That's where baseball is right now. And we're not going to play 162 games. We're going to play 80 probably. I would be surprised if opening day of Major League Baseball is done, happens by May 1st. I'd be very surprised of that. I don't know if we'll ever see 162 again, which is mind-boggling to me, but it is what it is. When do they go back? You know, these shorter seasons, more ga- less games mean more effort required, and they're more important. It's just not good. It really is a bad look for MLB. And right now, because the Super Bowl is still going on, you've got hockey just starting, the NBA and college basketball going Nobody's really looking at Major League Baseball. And it's a good thing because when people start to realize 
that the owners are purposefully dragging their feet yet again, it's not going to be pretty. And Rob Manfred is ill-equipped to handle it. The best thing about Rob Manfred, maybe the only good thing, is that he's a Rome, New York, Central New York resident, or he was, he grew up there, native there, and went to LeMoyne College in Cornell. Other than that, I, I got nothing good to say about the dude. Might be the nicest guy in the world, but he's inept at a very important job. It's too bad. I didn't think it'd get worse after Bud Clueless Sealing left office. It's gotten much worse and no signs of getting better anytime soon. The Major League Baseball team that God has put together in heaven is just stacked. You know, from Don Sutton last week to this week, Hank Aaron. And, you know, we always remember things when we were growing up, our, our formative years, especially if you're a sports fan. You know, there's always that point in time where you were the sports fan and started to to find sports. And for me, that was 1973, 1974. And that's when Hank Aaron passed Babe Ruth in 1974, opening day, off Al Downing, he hit number 715. And the impact that had on me as a little kid, knowing I was watching history, not understanding what Hank Aaron had gone through to get there, you know, as little kids, we've not yet been jaded and we're not stupid. We just see a person. We don't see a black man or a white man. It's a wonderful thing, actually. And unfortunately, too many people grow up and lose that ability. And what Hank Aaron had to go through with the racial insults and the, the threats and all that, and the way he carried himself through some man of class and dignity when Barry Bonds broke his record, and Barry Bonds is the all-time home run king. Don't tell me he's not. He hit 762. Hank only hit 756. Sorry. You, you look at that, and, and, and it's what, what Bud Selig did when Barry Bonds did it. He acted like a petulant child. Hank Aaron acted like a class gentleman that he always was. But Aaron was so much more than just a home run hitter. I mean, He's third all-time with 3,771 hits. Only Rose and Cobb had more hits than him. Second in home runs. Fourth in runs. Ironically enough, he was tied with Babe Ruth in runs scored. And he's the all-time RBI leader with 2,297 RBIs. And he hit 305. The man was in 25 All-Star games. 25. Crazy. Just a great, great man and arguably the greatest player in Major League Baseball history, though it seems we've forgotten so much of that that we won't ever say it. So rest in peace, Mr. Aaron. College basketball underway. and This story has gotten a little bit older. And again, we're now doing this on a Friday, not a Tuesday. So because of that, it may not have the sting. But I want you to listen to what an asshole sounds like. And Mike Krzyzewski's an asshole. Make no mistake, the media can kiss his ass all it wants, but this guy's a jerk. He is a first-class jerk. He's a bully. He gets his way too often. And he is not the man that the media makes him out to be. Listen to Mike Krzyzewski answer a question from a student reporter. 
after a loss last weekend. Hi, Coach. I'm just curious as to what, what the next step forward here is for the team as you guys move into another week of basketball. Yeah, why don't we just evaluate this game? You know, I'm not into what our next step forward is right now. We just finished the hard-fought game. Yeah, I don't know if, like, when you, what, what, what's your major? What's your major at Duke? What's your hardest class? Econ. Okay. So say you just had the toughest econ test in the world. And when you walked out, somebody asked you, what's your next step? Uh, you see what I mean? Does that, you have some empathy and, and, you know, just give us time to evaluate this game and then we'll, we'll figure out just like we always try to do. If you look up passive aggressive in the dictionary, they'll play that clip because that's exactly what that was. Look, Coach K, get over yourself. You've lost, you had lost three in a row at that point. And yeah, it was a tough loss, but you know, the questions are coming. It's the reason you're paid millions of dollars to coach basketball at a college that most Americans can't afford to get into. You've got a blessed life. Don't take it out on a student reporter. Don't take it out on any reporter. And and I've seen it not only from Mike Krzyzewski. You see it from all big-time college coaches. Jim Beheim's famous for saying, well, when you get your own team, you could coach them that way. In the interim, I think I'll coach mine this way. They feel as though they're unquestionable. Well, nobody is unquestionable. We all have the right to be questioned. How we answer those questions define how we are as people. And that's why Mike Krzyzewski is an asshole, because he can't handle being questioned. It was a legitimate question and a good question. It wasn't a biting question. It wasn't pointing out the fact that the one-and-dones don't work in a pandemic. It was a legit question. Oh, about the one-and-dones not working in a pandemic. It's no coincidence that this week, Carolina, Kentucky, Memphis, and Georgia are all unranked, along with Duke. All of those schools are big one-and-done schools. Recruit the best freshmen, have them for one year, put them on the floor, do the best you can. And in Kentucky and Duke's case, they've won championships this way, and then get another group next year. Well, in a pandemic, you don't have the kids on campus all summer working on their bodies, playing pickup together, organized team activities are illegal, but we all know what goes on in summer basketball camps. You don't have the fall conditioning. You don't have the preseason, extended preseason, where you get to work on getting these guys to gel into a team. You don't get the cupcake schedule where these guys get to go out and learn how to play college basketball games before they have to play important games. The other side of the coin is, the top four right now, Gonzaga, upperclassman late. They've got a spectacular freshman in Suggs, and Gonzaga is by far the best team in the nation. But let's not pretend the fact that they're seniors and this is a pandemic year hasn't helped them. Same with Baylor, very much an upperclassman team. Villanova, likewise. They were number three. They're also very upper class heavy. 
The one exception is kind of funny. Michigan, the number four team in the country this week. Hunter Dixon, Dickinson is a seven-foot-one freshman who is their leading scorer. But they still start three seniors. Because of the oddity of this college basketball season, the one-and-dones don't work. The teams with seniors are better. And it's killing guys like John Calipari and Mike Krzyzewski because they have to now coach better and they haven't been able to do it because you don't have the time to break down a freshman and build them back up into the player you want them to be. You didn't have all that offseason to work on that. You just got to deal with the hands you're dealt. Syracuse had a tough week in that they had a great win against Virginia Tech. And then Monday they go on the road against Virginia and just laid an egg. And this team is kind of the same when it's not good that it is when it is good. They play the same. It's just the shots going. And, and, and the problem for this team has been Buddy Bayheim. Buddy Bayheim in the last two games from the three-point – well, overall, Buddy is 7 of 26 from the floor. He had five turnovers in 34 minutes against Virginia. I've resisted going with this angle, but it's becoming increasingly apparent. Buddy has a pass, and I don't mean a physical pass. I mean like a hall pass that Kadari Richmond and Joe Girard III do not have. Buddy was awful against Virginia. He was one of eight from three, four of 13, five turnovers in that game. Yet he played 34 minutes, and the 34 minutes, all but two of them, I shouldn't say that, two, he was out for two minutes in the first half and then sat the last four minutes. So the reality is, in the last four minutes, the game was decided. The reality is he came out for two minutes during the game, yet was playing awful. Joe Girard actually played pretty well, didn't turn the ball over, was moving the ball, didn't take a whole lot of shots. He was only three of seven. And Kadari Richmond came in, and though he did turn it over, played some defense and got in the lane and did a couple good things. Buddy Beheim stays on the floor after a mistake. Kadari Richmond, Joe Girard come off the floor. You can make the argument one's a junior, he's earned the time. Or you can make the argument that one's the coach's son. I really think that there is a little bit of a bias there. And, and I get it. Jim, trust Buddy. Trust, trust him to make those shots. But guess what? It's been a bad year for Buddy Beheim this year. He just hasn't shot the ball well. And because of that, it's a problem not just for Jim Beheim and Buddy Beheim, but for the entire team. Because if Buddy's not going, and he's not hitting the three, which he hasn't all year. He's shooting 27.5% from three. This is a guy who should be shooting around 38% from three. It just hasn't gone, and he's getting good looks. I mean, conversely, Joe Girard's shooting 35%. You know, you think about it. If I was asked to ask you, who do you think shot the ball better from three this year, Buddy Beheim or Joe Girard? I, I would have thought Buddy. But you start to think about it, he hasn't shot the ball well except for a couple games. He's only made 22 three-pointers. And Gerard's made 31. 
Quincy Gurrier has made 12, and, and Alan Griffin's made 31. So Buddy is statistically right now the fourth best shooter of the starting five from three-point range. He needs to either do better or let somebody else play. And again, I criticized Jim Beheim last week for adjustments. Here's another adjustment, Jim. And this one's tough because this one, you got to look at your wife across the dinner table. She's pissed you took Buddy out. But guess what? Your job is to win basketball games. I don't know that he's going to be able to make that adjustment. We'll see. They play tomorrow night against NC State, and that's going to be a tough game as well. They got to get wins. This is a team that needs to get wins. And if they don't do that, they're on the bubble perennially. I think this is another year where they're on the bubble and it'll all depend on where they go at the end of the season. If they're able to stack a few wins together. Oh, and the craziest thing I've probably ever said on this podcast, they sorely miss Brahma Sidibe. Can't believe I just said those words. Barama Sidibe will help this team if and when he's able to come back because he's the only big man that Jim Bayheim will trust enough to play. He gave Jesse Edwards some minutes last against Virginia Tech, and Edwards played well. It was nice to see. He didn't get off the bench against Virginia. Didn't get off the bench. It, you just don't develop big men by sitting them on the bench. Jesse Edwards... Frank Anselm, John Paul Jock, three guys sitting there. You're undersized and out rebounded. Against Virginia, it was 40 to 23. They were out rebounded. But you're not willing to make an adjustment because you don't trust the big men. How does that develop those big men? I'm starting to think the more I watch, the more I see, it's, it's time for a change. I know Jim's got at least one more year after this, maybe two because Buddy gets the extra year because of the pandemic rulings. But I think it's time for somebody else. And what scares me, when Jim Beheim leaves Syracuse, Syracuse as we knew it will never come back. The Orange, that program that was an all-time great program, won't be that way. UNLV hasn't been the same since Tarkanian left. DePaul after Ray Meyer, never the same. St. John's after Lucard and Seca, not the same. Go on and on. There's several programs that have never been able to replace a legendary head coach. I'm sure Syracuse is one of them, but it's time to start that process. And the coach in waiting, there isn't one. And the guy up in Washington who recruits the hell out of it can't coach a team to victories. Washington and Mike Hopkins are having another tough year. And that's after recruiting another very good class. So I don't think he's the answer either. So more on this. We'll come back Tuesday. We'll talk more about all of these things, especially the Super Bowl and the Bills offseason plans. By then, I will give Brandon Bean a cheat sheet that he can use. And I'm sure he listens. So he'll go right off the cheat sheet, follow my instructions. And next year, the Bills will close that gap on the cheese. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great weekend. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.